We're in Isaiah chapter 1 this morning, and we want to talk about worship. We want to talk about worship this morning. Um, and before we do, I'd like to ask you to stand with me uh, as a way to honor the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 1. As we make our way through Isaiah over the next several months, there will be mornings where we cover too much for me to do this, but today's just one chapter. So today, today we'll do this. Isaiah chapter 1. It's after Song of Solomon and before Jeremiah in the Old Testament. 2,700 years ago, a prophet named Isaiah wrote this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but... They rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you that this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her. But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. 
Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them we really need to pray (laughs) father we um we thank you for this passage. Uh, Perhaps many in this room have not read this recently. This is not um, a fun passage. I do not particularly feel uplifted after reading it, but Lord, I pray this morning that you would work through your word and show us where there is indeed encouragement in this passage. Please show us uh, where we can learn from what you have for us here in Isaiah chapter 1. Help us to know that in your word, There is hope that crushes darkness. Please uh, remind us of that today. And we pray that today might be the day that those who are rebels, those who are unrighteous, those who have not repented would come to know this good Lord who loved us so much that he sent Jesus. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may have heard of a man uh, in church history, he lived in the 18th century, named John Wesley. Uh, There are at least two denominations named after him. One is the Wesleyans, and the other uh, are the Methodists. Uh, John Wesley, uh, back in the early 1700s, gathered men uh, from around uh, the UK where he lived, I guess it wasn't the UK then, England, and gathered men into what was called a holy club. Um, and they wanted to pursue holiness by rigorous discipline or method, hence the term Methodists. These men read their Bibles diligently. They spent hours upon hours in prayer. They fasted regularly. They were very devout in their giving. And yet, Wesley confessed that he did not truly know Christ and thus had not really truly worshipped God until years later. He stood in a church service and listened to Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. Can you imagine that in a church service? I'm going to read the preface to a commentary today. That would be interesting. But as he listened to Martin Luther's preface, he felt his heart strangely warmed and described this experience as the biblical concept of new birth. Wesley repented of his sin and his works and came into a relationship with God. Wesley saw his previous attempts to gain God's approval as false worship. He was not enabled to truly worship God until his actions, his work, his methods flowed from a new heart. And as we'll see today, this was the problem for God's people in Isaiah's time, and it is the problem in our time as well. Worship 
What do we mean when we say that word? Often we mean singing. We have a genre of Christian music called praise and worship or worship. Um, we tend to equate the term uh, worship with singing. And there's no problem with that because often in the scriptures, uh, worship is expressed through singing. Uh, however, worship is much bigger than just singing. For example, let's say that you uh, had some issues with your vocal cords and you couldn't sing. Could you not worship? What if you were mute, born without the ability to speak? Could you therefore not worship? We must be careful how we define this because the Bible has a much more expansive view of worship. You'll notice in your notes that I've titled today, uh, today's sermon a worship diagnosis. Uh, and we want to see what Isaiah had to say about worship in the time that he was a prophet. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ron introduced this series. If you were not here, you need to go back and listen to that. So if you subscribe to the podcast or if you want to go to villagebible.com and look at the messages, you can listen to Pastor Ron's message from two weeks ago about the introduction. But Isaiah was a prophet, as we see in verse 1, during the time of several kings um, in the land of Judah. And so this is really important for us to understand that Isaiah was a prophet who had a vision. Uh, We generally think of more like a dream state. Uh, But really, the the term vision kind of encompasses everything that the prophet Isaiah heard, learned, and saw, and then put into his verbal and then written prophecies. He spoke them in the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And we'll see these kings at various points pop up in the book, but not until chapter 6. So as we start Isaiah, chapters 1 through 5 don't have any historical context for us. We have to kind of discern from the words what's going on and when. When we get to chapter 6, a famous chapter, holy, 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 um, we get there and we see that it's in the last year of the reign of King Uzziah. Later we'll see things happening during the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah. And we'll see that those things are uh, explicitly mentioned, but not in the first five Chapters. The first five chapters act as an introduction to the whole book. If you've never read Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long. It is a long, long book. Uh, I was really blessed to have extra time to read at camp last week and so got through the entire book, but it is a long book. Chapters 1 through 5 introduce us to this. Isaiah is a prophet, and when you think of prophet, I don't know what's in your mind. Maybe kind of a John the Baptist, kind of like Freaky eyes, crazy hair, munching on insects and wearing camel hair. Um, maybe, for, you're, maybe you got a picture from uh, a kid's Bible from long ago that's kind of stuck in your head for the prophets. that They're kind of wild and crazy and they lose control and they start to speak God's word. Um, that's really not a helpful <laughs> picture of prophets. If that's in your mind, get it out. Um, what prophets were, were men raised up by God as uh, one author has kind of termed, termed this covenant enforcers. So prophets are known as covenant enforcers. They come in and they defend God's covenant or they bring a case against God's people that they are in violation of the covenant. So perhaps you've signed on the dotted line for a vehicle, a house, a big screen, I don't know, something. You put your name on the, on the, on the line. Below that line is usually a really tiny print that has all kinds of bad things that will happen to you if you violate this contract. This is what the, prophets are doing they are coming through they are making the fine print really really big and telling god's people where they are in violation of the covenant 
And you'll see in verse 2, what Isaiah does is he brings in some witnesses um, to talk about what's going on with God's people in the covenant. Who does Isaiah call in as his first two witnesses? Heaven and earth. So pretty much everything. (laughs) The universe. Um, Not only did uh, Israel's prophets do this, but prophets from the countries all around them would call sometimes uh, the elements um, or the universe, the galaxy, the the earth, whatever they um, understood, and call them as witnesses. And so Isaiah is not going to start with um, just a few uh, eyewitnesses. He's going he's gonna to start with nature. He's going to start with God's creation. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He wants to call them in. Share your observations on what Israel has done. Before we go any further, as we've got the, the courtroom set up and the heavens and earth are called in as witnesses, I want to just do a, a really quick explanation of two things. One is the word Lord. Can you please uh, look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24? You might need to turn the page. It might already be in front of you. I want you to look really closely at the words in your Bible. Verse 24, it says, Therefore the Lord declares. Do you see that word, Lord? Okay, it's spelled normally, capital L, capital L, and then lowercase letters, O-R-D. Now look at the next line. The Lord of hosts. What's different about the word Lord. All caps. Okay, so here's the confusing thing about this. In English, we have the same word with different font, and we probably don't really notice it all that much. But those are two very different words in Hebrew. And in fact, they're, where are they? They're up here somewhere. There's, here's, here's the all caps. When you see Lord in the Old Testament with all caps, it is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. It's a name. And when you see Lord, see, this is all caps. That's, that's kind of confusing. But if you see Lord, that's not all caps. Okay, like you see in verse 24 at the very beginning, that refers to the word Adonai, which is a title. It means master, Lord. So when we go through the book of Isaiah, you'll notice at times that Lord is either spelled with all caps, and that's referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh, how he revealed himself to his covenant people. And Lord is a, is a term master. I want you to notice that because from now on, I'd like to try to read Lord, all caps, as Yahweh. Because that is how God revealed himself to his people as Yahweh. That is his name. Secondly, I would like to point out the word Israel, which we will see throughout the book of Isaiah. Israel can be used in uh, at least four different ways. (laughs) Um, The first one is very general, as the descendants of Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God, and Israel means he contends or he strives with God. So Israel can refer to the 12 tribes of Israel, God's covenant people in a general sense. Number two can also refer just to the northern kingdom. After Solomon's reign, we had Saul, the first king of Israel, then King David, and then his son Solomon. But after Solomon's reign, the country of Israel split into two nations. The northern tribes split away, and they now called themselves Israel, and the southern empire southern kingdom was called judah confused yet all right it's gonna get worse um israel can refer then to just the northern 10 tribes and exclude the southern tribes however um after the split 
sometimes the prophets still use Israel in the general sense to talk about the whole people. And sometimes they're talking about just the northern tribes. And sometimes they'll only use Judah to talk about the southern tribes. And sometimes they'll only talk about Israel because during the reign, during the time of Isaiah, the northern kingdom was deported. No more northern kingdom. Northern kingdom of Israel is gone. All that's left is Judah. And yet sometimes the prophets call Judah Israel. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to have to do some homework every week as we look at uh, how the word is used to understand um, who he is speaking to. So we'll see um, terms like Zion, like Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, Ephraim. All of these, as we get to them, we'll try to explain and remind you of who is being addressed because that is very, very important. Well, let's get back into the courtroom Isaiah is called heavens and earth to be witnesses. And what he says, what he shows them is Judah's rebellion, which is your first uh, blank there, verses 2 through 9. Judah's rebellion. Judah's rebellion. He says, I've had, I have children. I brought them up. I raised them. But they've rebelled against me. Some of you parents, many of you parents can identify with this. With children that you've raised that have rebelled, that have turned against you and your, the way that you've brought them up. This is, um, I think, used so that God can very personally connect with the people of Israel. To use this painful picture of rebellious children to help the Israelites understand what they have done. I've raised you. I've loved you. I've fed you. I've provided for you. I've clothed you. And you have rebelled. In fact, he uses in verse 3 a picture that was really demeaning. He says, you know what? Out in, your, out in your stable, the ox and the donkey, they know who their master is. They respond when called by name. How many of you have, have a pet? Okay, now some of you have pets that don't respond to name. Like my tortoise does not respond to flipper. And flipper, the, the tortoise does not go. Doesn't happen. Tortoise does whatever it wants. However, some of you have dogs and cats, and when you say their name, here, Fido, right, you do whatever your little thing is, okay? And the dog goes, whoa, right? Or the cat, well, maybe the cat. Under, <laughs> hears, hears its name and understands there's a master. And then a stranger walks into the house, and mm, that's not going to happen. Some of you have dogs that will not allow a stranger <laughs> into the house or into the yard. Isaiah says, listen, animals understand who their master is, and yet, Israel does not know. How stupid are you? This is how stupid you are. You're dumber than a domesticated animal. Now, if I just said the bad, the bad S word, <laughs> um, it's, most of the younger kids are gone, except for my four-year-old. Um, <laughs> oops. <laughs> this is how it's going to be in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah sometimes uh, doesn't hold back, takes the gloves off, and goes after God's people. And in reality... It's not just Isaiah, right? We understand that, that, that God has inspired these words. And so God takes the gloves off and goes after his people. A one commentator said, Israel has less understanding of its Lord than even the most stupid of domesticated animals. Because ox, oxen and donkeys were not really like the prized intelligent beings, right? Let's, let's throw a yoke on them and let them pull something heavy all day. That's, that's what they do. And God says, even those animals know who their master is. Israel, you have no clue. You have no clue. This is what rebellion leads to. Rebellion leads 
to stupidity. Rebellion leads to doing things you never would have done before. Rebellion has led the children of Israel to not even know or understand who their Lord is. And this, as you can imagine, is a bad position to be in. Who is my master? Who is in charge of me? Children of Israel did not know. Look at verse 4. You see that word ah? It's also going to show up in several other portions of the book of Isaiah. It's not like, aw, how cute. Or, it's not that. It's more like, ah. You know what I mean when you do that one? Like when, when your team is really just not, not doing so well, as many of you can attest to right now, right? Ah, why do you do that? Exactly, Jason. Thank you. Yes. He's saying, ah, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Isaiah says, ah, sinful nation, come on. There's a, there's a desperation here. There's a pleading. Ah, sinful nation, not holy nation. That's what God chose the Israelites for, to be a holy nation. Exodus 19. There are people, he says, laden with iniquity, the pictures of a burden, that their sins are weighing them down. He then calls them, get this one, offspring of evildoers. The, the, the children of wicked people. And then calls them children who deal corruptly. All of these pictures are exactly the opposite of what God wanted Israel to be. In fact, they've forsaken Yahweh, verse 4. What, what that means is, is they've turned their back. So um, even in our culture, we can kind of see that. Um, there was talk of at um, both, actually both the Republican and the Democratic National Conventions, that at certain times if certain speakers walked up, that some of the delegations would turn their back to the speaker by saying, we reject you. <laughs> we, we're not with you. We're going to turn our backs to you. And this is what God has said through Isaiah that Israel has done to Yahweh. They have despised, verse 4, the Holy One of Israel. Here we meet, for uh, the first time in Isaiah, a very special name of God. I think, yeah, right there, Holy One. The Holy One of Israel. This is a special title that's given to Yahweh throughout the book of Isaiah. It unites the, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book of Isaiah. It is a special title with special meaning for God. In fact, the adjective holy is used of God more in Isaiah than the rest of the Old Testament combined. That should tell us something. Uh, 33 times in the book of Isaiah is God called holy in that way and 26 in the rest of the Old Testament. He is the holy one of Israel. Sometimes Israel is taken off and just the holy one. But this speaks to God's otherness, God's specialness, God's differentness than his people. God is set apart from his people. And we see it when the people themselves reject God, he is the Holy One. He is pure. They are utterly estranged from the Holy One. Their relationship is separation. In verse 5, God pleads with them through Isaiah. Basically, let me sum it up. Stop it. Why are you doing this? You're sick. There's wounds on your body. There's no one to give you medicine to heal your wounds. You are in trouble, Israel. Stop it. 
In verses 7 and 8, we get a, a physical description of what happens when God's children rebel. What's life like when we rebel against the Holy One of Israel? Well, for Israel specifically, their country lies desolate. Their cities are burned with fire. There's foreigners devouring your land. It's overthrown. And then he uses this image in verse 8 um, of like a booth in a vineyard. So you got to picture, we drove by a bunch of, um, a bunch of grapes and raisins as we went to the Central Valley this last week. Um, and it's like there's a booth in the middle. And, and um, booth kind of talks about like a temporary structure. So maybe not like as flimsy as some of our tents, but kind of in between uh, a lean-to and a tent in the middle of the vineyard where if there was a rainstorm out of nowhere, the workers would able to, were able to find some cover. Um, or if it was the hot, hot time of the day, they could get under that for some shade. He says, this is all you got left. Like, you don't got any palaces, no homes. You're just like a booth in the vineyard or like a lodge in the cucumber field. Just kind of a shack in the middle of the farm. That's all, that's, that's all, that's you, that's all that you look like. That's all that's left. Like a besieged city. Israel's rebellion had brought about judgment from God through their enemies. And we'll see this theme throughout the book of Isaiah. Continually coming back to this, that the rebellion has led to their destruction. In fact, how bad is it? Verse 9. If not for Yahweh's mercy, if he hadn't held back, then Israel would have come, become like Sodom or Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, what is that referring to? Well, in Genesis chapter 19, let me read for you what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to show you this region uh, in Israel now, um, but it is so desolate, it's almost unimaginable. Here is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, verse 24. Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to a place where he had stood before Yahweh and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Do you remember the story of Lot? Lot chose Sodom and Gomorrah because it was beautiful, good, lush, green land. That was 4,000 years ago. That land has never recovered. It is still sulfurous. Is that a word? Smells like sulfur. There's salt. I mean, you can lick. Someone may have done that, but I know. Uh, (laughs) You can lick some of the, the ground or the walls of dirt there, and there's salt in it. Nothing grows. That's why it's called the Dead Sea in that region. There's nothing there. 4,000 years is a testament of destruction. What is Isaiah saying? If God hadn't held back, that's what you would have been, Israel. Now, remember, what did God bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to go into? (laughs) A land of milk and honey. Uh, It was green. It was beautiful. It was a land just right for them to move into. Now he's saying, listen, if if God went all the way... You'd be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. What a downer. (laughs) This is not good news. This is not good news at all. But as we transition to verse 10, it gets worse. It gets worse. Verses 10 through 20 in your notes, I call this part the, the worship problem. Here's the worship problem. 
And he connects the use of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 9 and then transitions and uses Sodom and Gomorrah again in verse 10. And in this section, Isaiah begins to criticize some of the specifics of the children of Israel. He begins to criticize them for how they are worshiping God. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Yahweh. See, I made it again. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Wait, didn't he just say Sodom was overthrown and destroyed? So why is he using Sodom? He's calling Judah and Jerusalem Sodom. He's calling Jerusalem and Judah Gomorrah. His, his accusation is you've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What, what was the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah? The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was plentiful. Um, one commentator said Sodom and Gomorrah are a symbol of sin paraded. Sin as an accepted, even celebrated lifestyle. Yeah, sin. Yes, it's good to turn our back on God. It is good to do what he hates. It is good to be an abomination. That is what Sodom and Gomorrah stood for. So again, an insult. Isaiah, by the way, is taking his life in his hands by telling the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, by the way, rulers of Sodom, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Rulers of Gomorrah, you wicked rulers. This is what you're like. You're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God speaks in verse 11 directly to the people. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Time out. Why did the children of Israel sacrifice? Why are there even sacrifices to speak of? They just thought it was a great idea. Okay, who, who told them to do these sacrifices? God did. God says, in fact, in chapters and chapters and chapters in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he said, uh, with lots and lots of words and very specific instructions, this is how you do a burnt offering and a sin offering and a peace offering. This is how you do all of these things. God gave them these sacrifices. And now he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Like, wait, hold on, that's not fair. Make your bed, child. Why did you make your bed? What? Doesn't make any sense. What's happening here? God is criticizing not the use, but the abuse. You understand? He is saying, you are doing what I told you to do with the wrong heart, with the wrong motivation, and in the wrong way. And so because of that, I hate all of it. It's useless. Look at the second half of verse 11. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's covering the whole gamut. Well, what if we do the sacrifice? No. What if we do the sacrifice? No. I'm sick of it. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? What are the courts? Well, around the temple. In fact, some of you have studied Bibles and you've got great pictures of um, the temple in this time. And around the temple were various courts where the worship of God was supposed to happen because God told them to do it there. And God's saying, you're trampling my courts. It is using them like, like a normal place. You're just abusing this place. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. God told them, I mean, if you go back and read it in Leviticus, God gave them the formula for their incense. He gave them the recipe and he's saying, I don't want any of it. Don't give me that. 
I can't endure iniquity in Solomon. It's like, it's like God is, is there symbolically in the temple where he dwells on earth, and the people come before him, and he goes, ah! He doesn't want anything to do with it. It's disgusting to him. In fact, verse 14, he says, my soul hates it. Hate is a strong word. And that's why God uses it. <laughs> He's using it very specifically. He hates the new moons and appointed feasts. They become a burden to him. I'm weary of them. And then he says this. When you come before me with your hands upraised, which is, nor- by the way, the Jews didn't pray like we do. Let's pray. Or pray to yourselves, which is kind of funny if you think about it because you don't actually pray to yourself. You actually pray to God. But that's kind of the phrasing, phraseology we use quietly, silently. In fact, we're probably going to do it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Jews almost always prayed out loud. Any of you, have any of you ever prayed? I've done this in Mexico several times where everybody just prays out loud all together at the same time. It is really uncomfortable for most Americans. Because I have my little prayer formula and now it's all thrown off. The, the Jews would come before God and usually with upraised hands, sometimes kneeling, most of the time standing, and they would speak out loud to God. And God says here, I'm going to hide my eyes. I'm not looking. I don't want to hear you. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. Now just think about that. Just think about that. God's saying, I will not listen to your prayers. Go ahead. Give it a shot. I'm not listening. I don't want anything to do with your prayers. Stop talking to me like that. Your hands, here's the problem, are full of blood. Now, the, the, the question here is, is he accusing them of, of actual murder? Um, possibly. My, my thought is that probably most of the Israelites weren't out-and-out murderers because there wouldn't be very many of them left. But perhaps it is talking of some of them who were in one way or another responsible for killing. But it also very well might be a reference to the sacrifices um, that were happening in their hands getting bloody. And so a lot of the sacrifices, the person who bring in a sacrifice would put their hands on the head of the animal. The animal would probably have its legs tied together. And then a priest would come up and slit the throat. Um, and blood would often spatter. And you were right there. I mean, you were right there next to this animal. Perhaps it's speaking uh, of the priests themselves who were slitting the throats, who were pouring the blood out next to the altar like God had told them to do. And he says, your hands are full of blood. This is uh, precisely the criticism that God's prophets bring. Hosea uh, speaks of this. Um, but we also hear of it from Amos and famously from Micah. We sang it this morning, Micah 6, 8. Let me, let me back up a few verses and read that to you and notice the, um, the similarities. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is rhetorical. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What God hates is not the ritual he commanded. God commanded the ritual. He told them to do it and how to do it. But he hates the practice of the rituals disconnected from repentance, obedience, and love for God. There needs to be a connection. The disconnect is the problem. 
One of the commentators said, we cannot persist in evil deeds and expect ritual to deliver us from the consequences of those evil deeds. This is often how people treat this, the Lord's Supper, communion. Well, man, I really screwed up this week, but I just got to get a cracker and and some juice and I'll be good. That's totally disconnected from what the Lord's Supper is all about. This is a, this is a cracker. It's just a cracker, okay? Now what it symbolizes is immense. But just putting this in your mouth, the act of putting in your mouth, does nothing for you. It does nothing for you. Especially if you're relying on a piece of food to take care of your sin against the Holy God. How foolish is that? This is what the people of Israel were doing. Ritual cannot replace righteousness. So, many of you were raised on something like this. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay? Not bad advice. Okay? Not bad advice. All right? But... That in itself does not make someone righteous before God. Can we just say that? I mean, there are plenty of good people who don't smoke, drink, or chew. They never went with a girl that did, and they are lost. In fact, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Really quickly, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the retelling of the law. Deuteronomy means second law. Moses giving the law again to the people that survived the wilderness before they head into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Look at the order. Notice the order of what God says. And now, Israel, this sounds familiar, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? Huh. But to fear Yahweh, your God, to walk in all his ways, to what? Love him. To serve Yahweh God, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. What came before keeping the commandments? The heart. Love Yahweh. Fear Him. Serve Him. And keep His commandments. Do the rituals. Do them. You know, you know that Jesus... Um, kept these rituals. He kept these commandments. Um, he probably knew very well from an early age the requirements of the Torah, the law. He kept the law. We have no hope if he didn't keep the law. But, but what our hope rests on is not merely the fact that he went through ritual. And what, what we depend on is not merely showing up on Sunday as if some, something about showing up in this room makes us holy. I've eaten popcorn in this room. I mean... <laughs> I mean, like, there's, there's nothing about the carpet. There's stains all over it, right? Um, some of you have spilled juice on this very carpet. There's nothing about entering those doors necessarily that makes us holy or righteous. This is a gathering place, however, that when God's people are here, God inhabits this place in a special way. Because we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not because we eat a cracker, drink some juice, and look at a guy up on stage talk for 45 minutes. I mean, just, frankly, you know, half of you fall asleep. You know, how many of you have fallen asleep during a sermon? Right now, how many of you have fallen asleep? I have. Don't tell Pastor Ron, he's gone. <laughs> okay. Don, you can keep that in the podcast. Actually, I want him to hear that. Um, 
There, there's nothing about any of that that necessarily um, indicates that we are obeying God. Right? Because it starts in the heart. Love the Lord your God. And after you have loved the Lord your God, keep his commandments. And it says in Deuteronomy 10 that it's for your good. God gave them commandments for their good. They were good and right. We've got to continue. Verses 16 and 17, um, Isaiah gives them the prescription. There, there's, a, there's a worship problem. Here's what you need to do. Clean up your act. Let your actions match up to what God's requirements are. Seek justice. Take care of the orphan and the widow. James 1.26 says this. What's true religion? True religion is to take care of widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is true religion. So what God's people were doing was coming before him with sacrifices and offerings and doing all of that stuff and then living their life as if none of that existed. There was a complete disconnect. And we are totally aware of that in our own lives. We come on Sunday morning and we sing with our eyes closed, perhaps our hands up, if you're really brave. And we go from this place, and man, this doesn't feel the same. Because our lives don't match up with what we sing. We must, we must make sure that our actions flow from a good and right heart. Verse 18, one of the best um, passages in Scripture to, to, to picture for us what it is like for, for God to forgive us. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. There's, there's, that's opposite, right? Bright red, blood red, and white as snow. We're not very familiar with snow, but, right? Like any uh, mud or animal urine or motor oil, anything gets a little bit in the snow, and it is very evident, right? Very evident. He says, listen, your, 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 your heart can be white. This is like a promise. You can become this way. Verse 19, if you're willing and obedient. That was the problem. Unwillingness and disobedience. And verse 19 and 20, Isaiah says, eat or be eaten. Eat or be eaten. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. I'll keep all my promises to you and you shall eat all the good things that I provide. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Beautiful uh, uh, word picture there. Eat or be eaten. Lastly, verses 21 through 31. Judgment or repentance. Judgment or repentance. Isaiah gives the people the options. It's judgment or repentance. And quickly, because I'm running out of time. I mean, can it, can it get worse in verse 21? Are we allowed to say that word in church? He calls the holy city a whore. A prostitute. What? That's, um, that's a little offensive. I don't like that. He says, listen, in order to explain how far Jerusalem and Judah have gone from obeying me, they are like someone who has sold their body for a little bit of money. And this is used throughout the prophets. Ezekiel is a lot worse than this. Ezekiel says that you have given yourself to your enemies. God accuses them of impurity. Verse 22, silver has become dross. It's, it's not pure silver. Your best wine is watered down. 
He says everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. This is not how God told his people to live. In Exodus 23, he said, you shall take no bribe. Why? For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted, subverts the cause of those who are in the right. They are actively working against God's law. They are, verse 23, they're not doing what God said to do in verse 17. Take care of the orphan. Take care of the widow. Verse 23, they do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Exactly what they needed to do, they weren't doing. To say it another way, a commentator said, Israel's rulers were unruly. Their rulers were unruly. He says, ah, again in verse 24, ah, I will get relief from my enemies. It's kind of a, a reluctant thing. And God says here, I'm, I'm going to take down my enemies. I will destroy them. They will be taken care of. And after that, only after that judgment, shall you be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, verse 26. In 27, that name Zion, which stands for Jerusalem, shall be redeemed by justice. And watch this. And those in her who repent by righteousness. What is required to be the remnant of God is repentance. Just because you call yourself a Jew does not mean you're saved. Just because your parents are Christian, you grew up in a Christian home, and you go to church regularly does not mean you have repented of your sin. It just means you showed up. Isaiah is trying to say, listen, you are God's chosen people, but because you are God's chosen people corporately doesn't mean individually you're ready to go because you might not be repenting. You might not be in obedience to God. Repent. Why? Well, look at verse 28. Rebels and sinners broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Verses 29, 30, and 31, the last verses of the chapter are one of Isaiah's favorite uh, images out of a tree. We'll see it throughout the book. In verse 29, they shall be ashamed of the oak that you desired and they sh- you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Why would you blush over a garden? Oh, what it's talking about is a shameful kind of blush because what people did under oaks and in gardens is shameful to speak of. The religions around Israel were full, full of physical and sexual immorality in order to worship those gods. And Israel had turned its back on God and participated in this kind of false worship under the oaks and in the gardens. You'd be ashamed of that. And then he switches it up in verse 30 and says, you're going to be like an oak, big, strong oak tree that withers and dies. I mean, this is an unbelievably poignant picture because we were just up in the mountains and there are trees dying everywhere. Big, strong, ponderosa pines and redwoods and all these trees destroyed by little beetles crashing to the ground. This picture of oaks that that wither the gardens without water. I mean, we understand that, right? Your lawn looks great right now, doesn't it? The best it's ever been doing. This is what he says shall become of those who are not repentant, who do not obey. As we move through the book of Isaiah, what is promised is a Messiah, a son of David who will come and restore a right relationship between the people of God and God. In fact, to go out to the ends of the earth so that Arabs and Greeks and Americans might know the love of Jesus and have access to him. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. We thank you that Jesus came, took on human flesh just like ours, lived 
the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died in our place for our sin. The only one who didn't deserve it took all of our sins upon himself. The wrath of God poured out on one man so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear from a righteous God. We have acceptance. We have invitation to come and to worship with clean hearts and clean hands. So Lord, help our lives to match what we say. Give us power through your Holy Spirit to live what we say we believe, that our worship would be pleasing in your sight, that we would not come to this place or live our lives at our jobs, at our schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our hobbies, at the grocery store, in such a way as that you would reject our worship. Lord, we, we, should, we should want to please you and to offer sacrifices, our very bodies, our lives, before you on the altar for an aroma that pleases you. Help us to go from this place and do that. Thank you that you made a way for us to be able to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.